Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Jacqueline Masters, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode number 62, where we're talking about Terra Nullius by Claire D. Coleman and her father's daughter by Alice Pung. Hi, Kendra. I'm so excited to talk about these books today and, you know, discussing some of the literary prizes in Australia at the moment. Yes, that's big news. It was just announced uh, yesterday, yesterday, our time. Yeah, yesterday when we're recording it, which was International Women's Day in Australia, which I thought was quite a, a nice touch for announcing a women's prize for fiction. Oh, sorry, not just for fiction, <laughs> nonfiction as well. Yeah, and then the Women's Prize for Fiction was announced, what, earlier this week, last week? Yeah, it's been a bumper week for women's literary prizes. I was looking through, like, my memories on social media and it has all these, like, International Women's Day and Women's Prizes, like, short list, long list posts. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice, nice way to remember. (laughs) So uh, we normally don't do news on our discussion episodes, but I had to get your reaction on a few of these prizes. So we're just going to add that today. It's a little bonus for everyone. Uh, and we are a start then, I guess, with the Women's Prize for Fiction over in the UK. Their long list came out. Yes. So I was really excited by this list of 16. I think there's a really good range of diversity reflected in the authors. And the only thing that I was really disappointed with was that there was no Australian books represented on the list. But what did you think about it when you saw the, the list? Uh, you know, the past few years, I've, you know, been kind of lukewarm about the list. I have read six books out of the 16. I have another four or five that I would want to read. And I feel like that's pretty good. I, I don't expect all of the books to be Kendra books per se, but I do think that they've really upped their ante and, and including more diverse books as well, which is really important. Yeah, I think I was about the same. I think I'd read six of the the list. And there's a, a handful of others that I want to read. There's also just some that I can't get hold of here. So, I mean, that's an issue as well. Yeah, yeah. Because this is uh, for the UK, so that it goes by all UK publishing dates and times. And that's always what I always find confusing. Being in America is, you know, we have a lot of the same books, but they're published at different times. So you're always confused, like, what's eligible this year? Like yeah. what and then there's like paperback and hardback releases. So it's all very confusing. I, I struggle. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say my favorite would probably be Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss. Oh, I really like that one too. I really liked Sally Rooney's Normal People. And I think that's been a bit of a crowd favorite from what I can tell with other people that talk about books online. I think a lot of people like it. Yeah, I haven't read that one yet. I'm very excited. I read Conversations with Friends and really loved it. So I've been waiting for it to come out here in the U.S. See, I haven't read that one. And I I think I need to go back and read it now. (laughs) (laughs) I think the biggest news is that the first non-binary person was longlisted for the prize. Yeah, that was exciting. Which is pretty cool. Uh, Ekwakia Mezi, the author of Freshwater, their book came out last year here in the U.S., it sounds like a fascinating concept. It's it's probably one of the books that I'm more excited about on the list. So I was really pleased to see it included. Yeah. So sounds like a sounds like a good bunch. I am interested to see how they narrow it down to the short list. Yeah, I've got no idea. <laughs> I feel like I've got no <laughs> feel for this one, unfortunately. It'll be a surprise. All right. So speaking of short list, the Stella Prize came out with their short list, which is six books. Yes, I was very excited to see this. Um, And I feel like 
the the short list is very diverse, which is something that I know the long list got very heavily critiqued for. I haven't read any of these because of the lack of availability here in the U.S. I did order uh, Brie Lee's Eggshell Skull, which was on the long list, and I was so sad that it didn't uh, make the short list. It was my favorite for the running, even though, you know, having not read any of them. Yeah, I've got to admit that my my initial reaction was that I was disappointed because that wasn't on the list and neither was uh, Chloe Hooper's The Arsonist, which were both nonfiction and both titles that I was sure were going to be contenders. So I was disappointed that they weren't on the list. But you did call Pink Mountain on Locust Island. Yeah, I did call that one. I also thought that Axiomatic by Maria Tamarkin, which is nonfiction, and also uh, Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko. I was particularly pleased to see that one because Melissa's a um, very celebrated and widely acclaimed Indigenous author. So I really love that the Stella is profiling and elevating Indigenous voices and really showing the world uh, what Indigenous women writers are, are publishing. Yeah, I think that's just such an important part of Australian literature. And I'm interested to see who will win the prize this year and what that's going to look like. Last year, the Alexis Wright won for her nonfiction biography. And was it one of the first nonfiction books to win the Stella? Yeah, I, I think it might have even been the first. I'm not 100% on that, but I don't recall a lot of nonfiction being heavily represented in previous years. So last year, I looked up statistics, and every book that has won the Stella has eventually come to the United States. But I'm not sure Alexis's book is going to come over here. And so it makes me wonder, no. you know... I haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I, it makes me wonder if is the winner of, you know, this year's prize going to come over? Because it is really a huge issue of... Australia books not being published in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I have seen some of her other titles available here, some of her works of fiction. But yeah, it's it's a huge problem that international readers are getting excited about these books and then they can't buy them, which I mean, it's it's a huge problem. I was talking about the prize with uh, some bookish people over in the UK, and a lot of them were just frustrated because they couldn't get any of the books, even on Book Depository. So they weren't covering the prize at all on their channels or uh, different social media outlets, just because, I mean, if you can't get your hands on the books, you can't speak about them without with any confidence, you know, because you haven't read them. Yeah, and that really saddens me that there's people out there that want to read them and want to talk about Australian literature and nonfiction and just can't get hold of it. Um, I've certainly found, like I still am lucky that I have this access to my Australian library app so I can get audiobooks and e-books. Um, I also buy a lot of e-books via Amazon on my Kindle. I buy some print copies from places like Book Depository and Abe Books. But even with all of that said, there is still one title on this shortlist that I just cannot get hold of. I feel like I put in a lot of effort with trying to find these books, and I, I don't know that the average reader would go to that extent to try and hunt down these books just to read them. Yeah, I, I just think it takes so much effort. And I mean, these books deserve to be read, and they should be read. And I'm I'm hoping as time goes on and, and more international attention comes to the Stella Prize, because it is still fairly a young prize, that more... American publishers, uh, North American publishers will pick these books up. That is that is my hope. Yeah, I would love that, Kendra. <laughs> I have my fingers crossed too. 
Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about the lack of availability or awareness for Australian literature, and uh, some of you were concerned that with our discussion of New Zealand literature last time, that we just weren't aware that there were also lots of women writers in New Zealand. And uh, I just wanted to reassure all of you that uh, there are so many New Zealand writers, and we're very excited for them. The main issue I think we we were trying to cover was that they're just not well known, and the books here in America they're just not available. But I think it's it's also a fact that I mean very similar to what we're having this discussion about Australian books. Like it's we're having to do so much digging just to find out what they are and where we can buy them or borrow them or read them. It's it's just we we're lacking the resources to kind of do that deep dive into that area of literature and. It's not that these writers don't exist. It's that they're not being kind of elevated to the point that, you know, they're more internationally recognized in the same way that sort of British or um, American titles are. And like someone commented, a woman other than Eleanor Catton won the Man Booker Prize in the 80s and another woman won the Carnegie Medal. So you have these New Zealand women doing amazing things. They're just not being recognized by an international audience. And I'm sure that the systematic problem is a combination between New Zealand uh, publishers promoting the books and also American publishers not picking up those books because they don't think an American audience would connect with it per se. And I think that's very unfortunate because I personally, as a reader, want to read books by New Zealand women. That's also why we include a prompt called Read a Book by Nigerian or New Zealand Writer for the Reading Women Challenge. And there have been so many great recommendations from you all uh, when you have tagged us in different things uh, across social media. So we've had so many amazing recommendations there. Definitely go check out the Goodreads group because there's a thread about this topic and so many people are leaving amazing recommendations. So if you do have some New Zealand titles that you recommend to us and other people doing the Reading Women Challenge, definitely leave them in that thread. And I will be sure to include that a link in the show notes as well. So everyone has all of the things and can just go wander and read awesome, amazing New Zealand women writers. That is our update about the prizes for women's literature in various parts of the world. So now it's time to talk about our discussion book. And Jacqueline, I believe you have the first one. Yeah, so the first book that we've picked to chat about today is Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman. And this one is out in North America through Small Beer Press and from Hachette Australia within Australia. So just to give you a bit of background into who Claire Coleman is, she's a Noongar woman whose family have belonged to the south coast of Western Australia since long before history started being recorded. And she writes fiction, essays, poetry, and she does a lot of this while she's travelling around the continent that's now called Australia. So she was born in Perth, um, away from her ancestral country, and she's lived most of her life in Victoria, which is more on the eastern coast for those not from Australia. And most of that has been in and around Melbourne, which is where I'm from. So is in Australia, is Victoria like a province or a state? So Victoria is a state. Yeah, Western Australia is a state, Victoria is a state. And we also have two territories. So there's the Northern Territory and the Australian Capital Territory, which is all of our head government buildings and um, things like that are run from. Is that sort of like the District of Columbia here? Yeah, it's it's very similar to that, actually. Yeah, it's a good comparison. Claire writes a lot about the sort of Australian outback and, you know, that scenery factors a lot into her writing. You know, much like Jane Harper and a lot of other Australian writers, there's, you know, the landscape figures really heavily in, in a lot of stories. 
I heard her talking about how she traveled around in a caravan. Is that like a mobile home or a trailer? Yeah, I think it's a lot like a mobile home. It's a, you know, you can hook it up to the back of your car or your truck and drive around in it. So I think she took a, I'm not sure she took a typewriter, but I think she took an iPad or something similar like that. So yeah. And she said that she was like, while she was viewing the beautiful Australian, like countryside, essentially, uh, she wrote the the book. And I think you can definitely get that feel for that. So I ended up Googling a lot of photos from the areas that she was mentioning. Because ah. I, you know, I'm American. I've seen these photos. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I thought that was really great how she was able to communicate place, even for us who have not been there or even seen seen it. Well, that's a great observation because that was one of my questions I had, like how an American reader views or an international reader generally views the way that Claire Coleman captures scenery in her book. I thought she did a great job. Uh, so this book actually came out in Australia long before the American edition came out in, in 2018. So what was your initial impression when you read the book? I probably read it about this time last year, I think. I went into it not knowing too much about it other than it was a sort of alternative Australian history and, you know, giving more agency to the Indigenous voice within Australian history. And I didn't know too much more than that going into it. And I'm really glad I went into it with that limited knowledge because I just was completely blown away and it gave me so much to think about and... I, my first reaction was I wish this book had been on my high school syllabus because I think it would have been fascinating to discuss in a classroom and to to discuss with people as you're learning Australian history. So that was the, one of the first things that I thought about when I read it. Yeah, and I had never read anything about colonization in Australia at all, and you know, going into this book, I thought it was, you know, I went in there and I'd heard that it was science fiction-y, like there was stuff in it, but I hadn't heard much, which was good uh, because when, you know, more stuff happens, I was, it was totally blindsided me and I thought it was just like, you know, historical fiction essentially, but then it's not. Mm, No, (laughs) it's definitely not. And I think that's, that's one of the like real strengths of it, that it's not just a run of the mill traditional history because it's so much more than that. And it, it's engaging with what history means in a very present and relevant context to the way that Australians now are, are grappling with that same issue, which I thought was really clever. And I, it's, I'm hopeful that this will prompt a lot of really interesting discussions when people do read it. I found that just incredibly fascinating. And, you know, sometimes I'll see people like they'll DNF the book after you know a few chapters or before essentially the first half of the book i'm like no 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 no. you're missing the whole joy of it (laughs) and i'm like just wait just wait (laughs) it all makes sense so one of the interesting things about this story is that claire g coleman uses the terms the settlers and the natives um and these are capital s capital n uh, the words they are people groups and so the settlers um, they've set up different schools for the native children and then the settlers have also taken over different areas but you're under the impression that this outback area is one of the last vestiges where you have free native peoples most of the native population is being colonized you have this free band of native peoples out in the outback 
um, just trying to survive. And it kind of goes back and forth between these two people groups, but you get multiple characters' perspectives. Yeah, I think that that's one of the strengths that you do you you do get these perspectives and you know these homes where the the natives are sent really do reflect so much of actual Australian history and the kind of horrors and experiences that the characters depict like quite graphically is something that I don't think Claire would have had to to imagine too much. I think that's something that she's drawing from actual history very accurately and it's it's an area that's perhaps not voiced as much in um, traditional history books because it's you know traditional Australian history texts really whitewash history and give a very um, one-sided view about how colonization happened Um, but what this does is really interrogate those sort of traditional notions of narrative and give more agency back into the Indigenous experience and really kind of show how horrific and violent um, that was for um, people. You know, I found it very interesting because both Canada and America also have a history of putting Native children in schools. This wasn't unfamiliar to me. So it was like, oh, you know, colonialism is colonialism. Like there are similarities throughout these different um, countries. Yeah, I think it's she, she's managed to make it very relatable to international readers while also being very true to, the, I guess, the Australian experience in a sense. Um, so it's very clever. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, she made a point. There's a Q&A in the American edition um, in the back. And I wanted to read a comment that she made for American readers because I think that the discussion of how American readers would perceive this book is is just really fascinating considering that it's so Australia-specific in a lot of its cultural, like, elements. And she says... When asked, you know, what do you hope American readers will take away from this novel? She says, the historical cues are not as local for American readers, but that does not mean there's nothing for American readers to gain. Many of the problems from colonization are identical between our countries. Colonization is colonization, and slavery is slavery. There is no way to separate them. I've heard many times of the evils done there in America, and many of them sound a lot like what happened here. I think there's a lot to gain. And she also talks about how she would really like to come to America and talk to First Nations uh, and Indigenous people from the North American continent and, and just share their experiences. And I thought that was just very moving how all of these people from different backgrounds, different continents, areas of the world could get together and talk about these things and find common ground. Yeah, it's incredibly moving. So one of the interesting things about this book is the title, Terra Nellius. And like most Americans, I have no idea what this term means. So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that and what it means um, to people who are from Australia. Yeah, so Terra Nellius, it's actually defined on the back of the cover, which I thought was really helpful. Um, And it's defined as land belonging to no one or no man's land. And it was really this myth, this legal myth that was perpetuated when Australia was colonised, that the land did not belong to anyone before the colonisers arrived. And that simply does not ring true to the actual experience of Indigenous people inhabiting and owning the land for, you know, since time immemorial, really. I found the title particularly interesting because I felt like it was giving agency in that word that has so historically been associated with so much negativity and 
um, destruction of the Indigenous experience. And I thought that it was really interesting that Claire Coleman chose to use that as the title for her book to really interrogate what that means now and in the context of, you know, the story that she's putting forward in this book. So you say that terra nullius is this legal myth. Now, in, when you're not in the bookish world, you're a lawyer. Um, so what is the significance of that term now and how has it changed since it was originally thought up? Well, I think there's still a lot of discussion with land ownership and um, how that still plays out in society today. There are still native title decisions, for example, that come before Australian courts. And they're relatively recent when you look at how old the country is in that sense. You know, a lot of issues with Indigenous land rights and things like that. So it's it's still a very kind of present term, I guess, in, in the Australian context. And I think that goes along with something else that Coleman says is that there is this lie that colonization no longer uh, is in effect or no longer affects people in Australia. Uh, but in reality, a lot of you know, native peoples are Aboriginal people are still having to face the consequences of this. Yeah, and I think perhaps she's speaking to maybe people that choose not to engage with what's happening and try to leave the past in the past or things like that. So I think for Indigenous Australians, it's very much a, a ever-present concept. So I think she's perhaps getting at that. So Claire actually talks a lot about what terra nullius means in the present day, I guess, in her um, author's note at the end of the book. And she talks about that in the context of Australian land law, um, the significance of what's called the Mabo decision in 1992, and it really recognised that um, Indigenous people were the first owners of Australia, essentially. Um, so she talks about that a lot in the back of the book, and I think it's worth sort of looking into it a bit more if, if this has been something that you've found interesting reading about it. I think that the way that she's used the term terranelius to really center this discussion that she's addressing, and I feel like if you're Australian, you probably already have an idea of what that is, and it's sort of like setting up the story even before you open the cover. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. One of the interesting things about this book is that Coleman has given us these fictional documents about the settlers and the natives in that conflict and how some of the settlers have written these like fictional accounts or there'll be quotes or just sort of like these old documents that don't actually ever exist, but they add a lot to the story. Yeah. So at the start of each chapter, she's popped in these quotes that really kind of frame where that chapter's going or shed a bit more light on where the plot is at that point. And they're all except one, I believe, fictionalized, but they're drawn from a lot of research that she did into actual historical documents or um, things like that. So she's got quotes from, you know, colonial troopers. And so she's got quotes from colonial troopers and from um, one of the, the nuns in the story, Sister Bagra. I thought they were a really creative way to bring in how immersed in real history the story is without it being a non-fiction narrative per se. So I thought it was a really great way to keep it um, in that realm of fiction still. Yeah. And as the story progresses and as the, the big twist happens, so do the documents change? 
I thought how she kept up with that and how she altered things and, and moved almost like seamlessly from one thing to another. I was just so impressed with her skill in doing that. I mean, this is her debut novel and she's using structure and different storytelling elements uh, just so incredibly well. Yeah, I thought that because I think a lot of the quotes in the last half of the book tend to be more looking back on this specific narrative itself and how that's kind of built into the the broader history. But yeah, that's such a clever way to bring different structural elements into it. And for a debut novel, it's very, very impressive. So that is Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman, uh, out in the US by Small Beer Press and from Hachette Australia in Australia. And we'll be back to talk about our second discussion pick after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode of Reading Women is our Reading Women store. If you didn't know, we have a store on Etsy where we sell blind book dates, our brand new enamel logo pins, Reading Women award kit, seal kits, bookmarks, and I think that's everything. Uh, recently, we have restocked all of our blind book dates, and so we have so many titles that I am thrilled to share with everyone. Yes, we work very hard to make sure that our book date store is filled with a wide range of books, including books that were published within the last year, mysteries, thrillers, historical fiction, all kinds of different genres and categories. And then we also ask for your three most recent favorite reads to make sure that we pair you with the perfect book match. And we can also look at your Goodreads. Uh, we also do gifts. So if you have that uh, hard to buy for person in your life, but you know they enjoy reading, uh, we are happy to help you out. Or if you're working on the Reading Women Challenge for 2019 and you're looking for a recommendation, we're happy to give you one of those for any of the prompts that we have for the Reading Women Challenge. And this month, everything in the Reading Women store is 15% off with the code READINGWOMEN15. So for the entire month of March, you can get your own logo pin or a blind book date for yourself or a friend for 15% off of the listed price. Okay. And this is actually the first time that our new enamel pins have been on sale. So if you've been waiting to get one for yourself or for a friend, now is the time to do it because they are going to be 15% off this month only. Right, so limited time. So definitely check that out. You can find a link to our store on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, or you can just check the link in your show notes. So Kendra, did you want to talk a little bit about the next book that we're going to be discussing today? Yes. So my discussion pick is Her Father's Daughter by Alice Pung, and this is out from Black Ink in Australia and the United States. Uh, again, you can find it on Book Depository if you are in the UK, but uh, there are uh, different formats available, so definitely go pick it up if you haven't already. This book is a memoir, and it's about Alice's uh, kind of journey of understanding her dad and also her dad's journey of how he came to be, well, Alice's father and his background, and it's told in third person, so it gives it a unique feel. She's able to distance herself in a way that works with the narrative. 
I think important to note about this book, it does have a lot of trigger warnings um, because her dad survived through Pol Pot's regime in Cambodia. And so there was genocide and really horrific things done to the people there. And, and that is uh, described in a section of this book. So just be aware. But she looks at the history of Cambodia because her dad, though his parents are Chinese, they had immigrated to Cambodia. And then after uh, the events um, that happened... Uh, with the genocide and all of the things they suffered through that, they they moved to Australia. They immigrated to Australia, where Alice is from. And so that's why he named her Alice, like we talked about in our last episode, is because he thought Australia was a wonderland. So what was, what was your initial impression when you read this? Because it is told in quite a different structure, being in third person. Like, how did you find you digested that as a reader? Well, I listened to it on audio, and I met, I was really surprised when... I, you know, heard the story being told and it was in third person. I actually checked the book and like make sure that it was a memoir because I was like, wait, is this, is this right? Did I get this wrong? But I do see why she did that because if she used first person, that would make you closer to the daughter. But by using third person with her own story, as well as her father's, you have them on equal footing. Yeah. Because so much of their narrative is so intertwined and informed by the other as well, isn't it? It is. And there's a a process of both of them trying to understand the other. And so you have Alice traveling to both China, where her grandparents are from, and Cambodia, where her parents are from, and trying to connect with them and understand them. And in fact, the first line of the first chapter of the book uh, is... In her flat in Beijing, she writes the first sentence. This story begins on a bus. Um, It's about her living in China, studying there, and and trying to learn more about her family while she's there as well. Mm. You almost felt like you were getting a bit of behind the scenes into her own writing process, too, I thought, in that early part. Yeah. And, like, I don't know how you would process something like that, how you would even start to try to understand your parents and where they they came from because I just think maybe that's part of the book is that she'll never completely understand her father, but she is making efforts to understand him a little more Hmm. as time goes on. And I think that's really helped a lot by having the perspectives alternating so much. I feel like you're never kind of immersed in one voice long enough to lose sight of the other. And I think that was really effective in keeping that connection between the father and her story as well. And it is a very difficult story to read. But I think a lot of that's helped by the fact that it is in third person. It's always, it's happening to someone else. It's not the first person. It's, it's not like the, you're, the reader's being transplanted into the that experience. It's always, it's happening to someone else. It almost provides them a bit of emotional protection. Mm, it's a buffer. It's good. I think Alice Pong is very skilled in the way that she tells the story because she's dealing with a lot of very difficult topics uh, just to know that this kind of human behavior exists. Like it, it is extremely difficult to read about child soldiers and, you know, starvation and just the horrors that people are able to inflict on, on each other. But she's able to do it in a respectful way, in an honest way. I mean, this was her father's experience and is part of who she is. And there's a lot about how who we are as people isn't just us. We are carrying the weight 
of our family with us as we move forward in life. And I think understanding what that means for her, it means understanding where her parents came from and what they suffered through. Yeah. And I think even within her father's narrative, we hear about what happened to the rest of his family. Um, And I think that really does situate, again, it's just looking at everything in the broader context. It's a really um, effective way of telling that, that story. And I think there's also a balance there because while one section of the book does cover her father's history uh, in Cambodia, a lot of it's just everyday life with her dad and living, you know, with immigrant parents in Australia and having um, them be very financially minded. So one time they buy her like a property in her name (laughs) and it's her debt. Like she has to pay this off and they just do this for her. And she's like, why? Why did you do this? They're like, oh, it's a great investment. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? Um, And so like it's balanced with these almost like extreme ends of normalcy and and, like tragedy, but like you still go on as people, you know? Mm. And I thought her processing through that and almost like a continuous coming of age kind of um, idea. Yeah, and I think so much of that, like the transition between when she's telling her father's story during the genocide to when he moves to Australia and their family is starting their life there and he buys an electronics store, I think, and, you know, those stories about, um, you know, her mother starting to work in the store and um, I found them so relatable and I think there's a lot of people particularly that have a migrant background within Australia that will see something of themselves in parts of Alice and her father's story. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, and I think, you know, the, the book starts out with just her experience as being um, Chinese, Cambodian, Australian, and like her, her like, parents speak a different language and just like that feeling of being different from other people. And it moves from that into topics about her dad's past and so like there's these layers that you slowly get to know them together and so like she she builds up to it there's a quote here in the book that i really appreciated because a lot of the book is her father and and alice trying to understand each other um and and trying to connect with each other even though they come from very different backgrounds and, and just that struggle of what that looks like. And this is like a beautiful love letter to her relationship with her father and how much they care about each other. At the end of this one chapter, um, she's in Cambodia trying to learn more about her family. And uh, it says, she felt that this country was something precious, as brutal, as split open as a pomegranate with hot breath and the million red and buried eyes, a country she would never understand but that had shaped her father and made him who he was. The real miracle in this, she realized, as she watched him standing there in the heat, holding a straw hat to his head, was not that he had lived. The real miracle was that he could love. That's such a good quote. I think that's a beautiful sentiment to her love for her dad. You can see that in the words, a country she would never understand. It's like, in a man she would never understand. But she understood that he loved her. And that was ultimately the important part, the conclusion that she was coming to. And it was very powerful. She can write a sentence. Like, yeah, <laughs> she really can. She's a little talented. And like, there are other memoirs. Um, there's at least one other memoir, and I think some essays maybe that Alice Pung has written. Uh, and I definitely want to pick those up. 
Yeah, me too. Um, uh, the one I think a focus is more on the women. Her family is called uh, Unpolished Gem. Uh, so that is high up on my list, and I found it in Audible already. So, <laughs> um, so that is her father's daughter by Alice Pung, and that's out by Black Ink. And that's it. That's our month on Aussie literature. I'm very excited to hear what people think of these books. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts. And, of course, we're on social media all the time. So if you have questions or recommendations, uh, definitely let us know. Uh, But next month, we have Samaya's first month. Very excited about that. So Samaya and Kendra are going to be talking about Ramadan reading next month. I am so excited for this. Uh, So Ramadan is mainly in May, but we wanted to help all of you who observe Ramadan to build your TBRs in anticipation. And so uh, over the course of April, we're going to be discussing books by Muslim women authors. And I know this is a theme that's very close to Samaya's heart, so I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, her recommendations. Yes, and we've already been discussing um, our discussion picks already that might be cheating, but uh, we talked for like an hour the other day about one of them. After like a while, I was like, oh, this is a really great discussion book, isn't it? (laughs) It's a good sign. (laughs) Yes, always a good sign. All right, guys, so that's our show. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. Our patron of the day is Sue Dix, so a special thanks to her for supporting us in our mission. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming a patron, visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com. And join us next time where Samaya and Kendra will be talking about books for Ramadan reading. In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at the reading women you can find kendra at kd winchester and me on instagram at six minutes for me thank you for listening to reading women